Before we begin our Torah study this morning, let's pray together. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who sanctifies us with his commands and commands us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. This week we're reading about that moment we could call the Red Sea moment and the parting of the Red Sea and the crossing of the Red Sea. And there are some times when the plans that God has for us require that we go forward. There's no other option, but even going forward can be challenging. We can't go back and we don't want to give up. And so we need to go forward, but the children of Israel faced this, that there was no way to go forward, not in their own power. And I think each of us can relate to this because there are some times when going forward takes us on a path that seems impossible, or going forward takes us on a path that we would not prefer or that we wouldn't have chosen for ourselves, and that's what happened to the children of Israel as they left Egypt. Let's read about it in this week's Torah portion, starting in Exodus chapter 13, verses 17 and 18. And if you have a Bible, if you wave it to me, it'll encourage me. And if you have an electronic Bible, that counts too. So these are electronic Bibles these days. And uh, it is so wonderful to be able to use them and to have them available to us. Paper Bibles are also good. Exodus 13, starting in verse 17. After Pharaoh had let the people of Israel go, God did not guide them to the highway that goes through the land of the Philistines because it was close by. God thought that the people, upon seeing war, might change their minds and return to Egypt. Rather, let's say that, rather. Rather, God led the people by a roundabout route through the desert by the Sea of Reeds, the Red Sea, the Sea of Suf. A roundabout route. Life can be like that where God is aware of some things that perhaps we are not paying attention to. And he takes us the long way, not the short way. Moses, all of Israel are learning that the path of redemption can be long and it can be roundabout. In fact, God's path may be arduous. It may be challenging but here's the thing, it's effective, and it's actually efficient. God's path is efficient in accomplishing his plan for redemption. Shortcuts and quick fixes often are more appealing to us because they're less demanding, and they seem to offer faster results, but shortcuts and quick fixes by their nature typically are ineffective. And they can be counterproductive to accomplishing what God wants to accomplish and his redemptive purposes. That was the situation that Israel faced at the Red Sea, and which we're reading about in this week's Torah portion. 
the children of Israel have experienced the Passover, and they've left Egypt. That was the Exodus. And then the Lord takes them on the long way. How many can relate to the long way? Does it ever feel like you're on the long way too? Or the roundabout way? You've, you've got it figured out. It's like, I see how to get from here to there. I just need to take a few steps. And, and yet, the Lord guides a different way. Why is the Lord taking them on the roundabout way? Why is he taking them on the long way? Because he's protecting them. He's, he is aware of some things. They don't understand that he's protecting them, especially in the events that happen next. They don't think of it that way. But he knows that there's more to redemption and salvation that he wants to accomplish. And he wants Israel to learn and to know by experience. He wants Egypt to see that the God of Israel also, not just Israel to see this, but he wants Egypt to see that the God of Israel is the one and only true God. And so the Lord is taking them on the roundabout way. It can be challenging, can't it? To be in such a circumstance. Let's read from Exodus 14, the next chapter, starting in verse 5 through 18. When the king of Egypt was told that the people of Israel had fled, Pharaoh and his servants had a change of heart toward the people. They said, what have we done? Letting Israel stop being our slaves. You know, that is the common position of slaveholders. No matter what happens, if freedom is granted, even if they participate in it, they have regrets. It's like, what were we doing? And there is a tendency to try to get people back into slavery. So Pharaoh prepared his chariots. He took his people with him. He took 600 first-quality chariots, as well as all the other chariots in Egypt, along with their commanders. So you've got the first quality, and then you've got, what, seconds? Second quality? First string, second string? The bench comes out, too. Verse 8, Adonai made Pharaoh hard-hearted. How did he do that? He allowed the hard-heartedness of Pharaoh to remain in force, unabated. And Pharaoh pursued the people of Israel as they left boldly. The Egyptians went after them. All the horses and the chariots of Pharaoh with his cavalry and army and overtook them as they were encamped by the sea by Pihacharot, in front of Baal-Zephon. As Pharaoh approached, the people of Israel looked up and saw the Egyptians right there coming after them. In great fear, the people of Israel cried out to Adonai. Okay, so they cried out to whom? To Adonai. But from what position? From the position of great fear. The situation was fearful, 
But this was a particular kind of fear that compromised their spiritual strength as well. Some, sometimes we need fear. And I was thinking about fear as a grandfather and with my grandchildren, and I had a practice with them when they were young. We would go swimming, and I would have them one by one stand at the edge of the pool and then jump to me. And I'd start close, and then I'd step back, and then I'd ask them to jump, and then I'd step back further and ask them to jump, and then I'd step back. And I had a plan in mind. I wanted them to get to the edge of their fear, where they were afraid, but they still wanted to do it because these kids were adventurous. And I wanted them to experience trust in the middle of experiencing fear. And I wanted them to have fun, too. It wasn't dangerous, but to these little guys, it felt dangerous. And so I'd have my hands out and I'd step back. And so many times, one of them or another would say, come closer, Saba. And I'd say, no. I'd say, you can do it. I'll catch you. And some of them had less fear than others. But I remember one of them who could shake a little bit. And I'd say, you can do it, jump, and, and he would jump. And when they were caught and came up out of the water, because I let them go underwater too, that was just part of the plan, they were always laughing. They enjoyed the experience of being a little bit afraid and then doing something that they thought they couldn't do and finding out it was pretty fun. And so I, I started watching that they were no longer afraid. And so you know what I had to do. I had to step back even further, right? And so I would step back far enough where they would think, they don't really think I can catch them or that they could jump so far. And I would tell them, you can do it. I will catch you. And by catching, what I meant was this. I will have my hands out there, and you will land somewhere around them. And I will let you go under the water, and then I will pick you up out of the water. That's what catching meant with me. And you know what? They started enjoying it, and they would call this long-distance jump the big one. And so after a while, the oldest and then the next oldest and then the youngest would say, go back further, I want to do the big one. It became something that made them more courageous, physically courageous. And it also built our relationship together. And I think that there are times when the Lord works with us in a similar way where he puts his arms out, you know, if you will, poetically, and says, jump, and we go, uh-uh. And he says, jump, I'll catch you. And we go, uh-uh. And there's something about the way he interacts with us that we think, I think he will catch us. And we jump, 
and he catches us. And that makes us trust him. It's not blind trust. It's not blind faith. It's faith that sees and faith that experiences. So it's based on the true experience of trusting God and finding he is trustworthy. But there is another kind of fear that can, can undermine that faith, that courage, that trust. And it looks to me like the children of Israel at one point had great courage and faith, but then when they were in a new situation, an unprecedented danger that they could not figure out a solution for, they were tempted by this other kind of fear that actually can break down trust. It's not just normal fear about fearful circumstances. It's a different kind of fear, I think, that undermines the trust. And so this is what's happening, I think, with the children of Israel. Verse 10, Pharaoh approaches, the people of Israel look up, they saw the Egyptians right there coming after them. Now, you understand something. The Lord, in a sense, led the children of Israel to that position so that Egypt would come after them. But that's not the end of the story. So in great fear, the people of Israel cry out to Adonai. Okay, so that's great fear. And they do cry out to God, so at least they're crying out to the Lord. But then they say in verse 11 to Moses, was it because there were not enough graves in Egypt that you brought us out to die in the desert? Why have you done this to us, bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we tell you in Egypt to leave us alone? We'll just go on being slaves for the Egyptians. It would be better for us to be the Egyptian slaves than to die in the desert. Well, you can see that the fear response is very strong, and that's what Moses then speaks to, because he understands this kind of fear is undermining their faith, and it's contrary to the courage that they had when they cried out to God and God was answering them. And also, when the Lord gave instruction to take the Pesach lamb, to sacrifice the lamb, to put the lamb, the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of their houses, to stay inside, to eat the lamb, to do all those details, they did them all according to the instruction of the Lord. They had faith and courage and obedience, and they didn't argue with the Lord, and they weren't saying the timing isn't good for us. Can we reschedule this for another day? They were ready for deliverance. But they're forgetting that. And so Moses speaks to the children of Israel in verse 13. He answers the people, Stop being so fearful. Remain steady. And you will see how Adonai is going to save you. 
You're going to see it. He will do it today. Today you've seen the Egyptians, but you will never see them again. Adonai will do battle for you. Just calm yourselves down. Now, anybody who's ever talked to anxious people knows it's really ineffective to tell such a person to calm down. Usually they just amplify their anxiety. Don't be so afraid. Don't be afraid. Are you crazy? But the fact is, sometimes you just got to calm down. Sometimes you got to get a grip on yourself. Now, here's a subtle detail in verse 15. Adonai asked Moses, why are you crying to me? So earlier we were reading about how Israel was crying and what Israel was saying to Moses. They're like, why didn't you just leave us alone? Everything was fine until you set us free. Free to die here right now. But it turns out the Lord asked Moses, why are you crying to me? So you know what I think that indicates? Moses had a little bit of cry in him too. What are you doing, Lord? He's speaking faith to the people, but to the Lord, there's something else going on. And this just shows that you can't always fake it until you make it. You need consistency. And there are times when we may have a facade of faith. But with the Lord, he's recognizing that we're not trusting him. And in this way, the Lord is saying, I see you're, you're worried too. You're, Moses, you're afraid. And you're crying to me. And I think the Lord is asking Moses a rhetorical question. Why are you crying to me? Rhetorical because there's no good answer. I learned as a father and a grandfather, don't ask kids why they did something when there's no acceptable answer. It just produces... Uh, endless conflict. So if there's no good answer, it's a rhetorical question, why? But I think the Lord is also saying something to Moses. He's saying, why are you crying to me? I, I hear you, Moses. I hear you. And then look at the Lord's response. Mo, tell the people of Israel to go forward. And this is where the Lord is challenging the fear of Moses and the fear of the people. And he knows that they can't just stop and psychoanalyze themselves. They can't just get to the bottom of why they think that way and so forth. They need to do something different. Go forward. Now the Hebrew there that's translated go forward means something pretty straightforward. It means pull out and head out on this journey. It means uh, pull up and head out. Don't just stay camped here. You've got to get up and go. So pull out, I think, 
and go forward. Go forward is another way of saying it, and I like that. Um, I would I would put it in my favorite words, kadima, which is a Hebrew word, and it means forward or charge, but charge doesn't quite capture it. Forward is probably better. It's not actually in the Hebrew, but it's the same sentiment. The Lord is saying, I hear you, Moses, kadima anyway. And maybe you've been in that kind of situation in life where you cry out to God and he hears you, and then he doesn't spend much time on your preferred answer and just says, Kadima anyway. Forward anyway. So Kadima is not in the Hebrew, but it's, you know me, it's one of my favorite Hebrew words. So I would say it captures the sentiment for me perfectly. The Lord says, Moses, Kadima. Now, what's the problem? <laughs> the Red Sea. Yeah, it's a big problem. The Red Sea on one hand, and the Egyptians on the other hand. There's no way forward, but the other problem is there's no way back. No way forward, no way back. And the Lord says there's no use in crying. But here's the reality. No one, not one of these children of Israel wanted to be in this position. Not one of them thought this was a good position to be in. Can anybody relate to that? When you, when you find that your power can't get you out of your predicaments? No one says, ah, this is going to be great. Being trapped did not make sense to the children of Israel. In fact, it was terrifying. And something else was at work, I think. It has to do with how people think and how they think they're being wise because the wisdom of each person was arguing then against the wisdom of God. You could say it this way, that the fear of each person was masquerading as if it were wisdom, and that argued with the wisdom of God. And each one of us will experience times when we are at the limits of our own wisdom, we don't know what to do, and yet we may not like God's plan. But we're confronted with the limits of our own wisdom and the superiority of God's wisdom. And that's when we all face temptations where we actually want to be in the place of God. We want to boss him around because we're sure we know what's best. We know better. We're convinced our own wisdom is the best wisdom. It reminds me of an anecdote, a joke that um, an Israeli, a secular Israeli professor told Sandy and me during Sukkot one year. And he, he thought it was a funny joke. And I think it's funny, too. So he was saying it as a secular Israeli. Now, secular Israelis do not necessarily consider themselves atheists. 
but they don't consider themselves religious either. So they may not fit into categories that are familiar to you. But in this case, he told the story of another secular Israeli who was out hiking in the forest in the mountains. Israelis like to do that. They like to hike a lot. And this secular Israeli got too close to the edge of a steep cliff his feet slipped, and he started sliding down the face of the cliff. And he was crying out, and somehow he got a hold of a tree that was growing out of the side of the cliff, a scraggly old tree, and he was holding on for dear life and terrified. And he had this moment of existential crisis as a secular Israeli. And he decided to cry out to God. And he said, God, if you're up there, help me. And the Lord answered him and said, I hear you. Now, this is how the Israeli told it in his English. This is how he's, he, he's, he said it in English. And then the Lord said, leave the bush. Now, that's a way of saying in English, let go of the bush, of the branch. Let go. <clears throat> so the man, the secular Israeli, heard and said, what? And the Lord said, leave the bush, and I'll catch you. And the secular Israeli said, what? Leave the bush. Thought for a moment, calmed himself down, looked up to the edge of the cliff and said, is there anybody else up there? <laughs> and that's how many of us actually think in the privacy of our own terror. We cry out to God, and then he tells us something that is as fearful as the circumstance we're in. And he gives us a plan that requires that we trust in him. And that's when our own wisdom can start arguing with the wisdom of God. That's the Red Sea moment. And that's when the Lord was revealing more about himself as Redeemer and as Savior. Because we need to know him in this way. It's one thing to know him as God Almighty, the creator of the universe, and to know him in that abstract way or in the way that philosophers might describe him. But to know him personally as the one who cares about us and will become our kinsman redeemer and our savior. This is what the Lord is wanting to reveal. And sometimes circumstances will be not to our liking, but they are the circumstances that will help us come to the end of our own wisdom and our own sense that we can save ourselves 
And that's when the Lord can reveal much about himself as Redeemer and Savior. So he tells Moses, it's in Exodus verse, chapter 14, verses 16 through 18. He gives Moses now interesting instructions. Lift your staff, reach out with your hand over the sea, and divide it in two. The people of Israel will advance into the sea on dry ground. Now this is something that Moses cannot do in his own power. No one can. It's something only God conceived of, and God gives instruction to Moses to do this, and it's very important to pay attention to some small details. But the Lord says, lift up your staff, reach out your hand over the sea, and divide the sea in two. It's just a staff. The Lord doesn't say, lift up your magic wand, because the staff that Moses had had no power of its own. It wasn't magical. It wasn't something under the authority of Moses. And if he just pointed it, it would do incredible things. It's not the wizard's wand. And Moses is not Gandalf. And in this way, the Lord is showing Moses and the children of Israel, it's not the power of things, it's the power of God. So the Lord tells Moses, here's the solution, but it will require that you do what I say. Verse 17. As for me, the Lord says, I'll make the Egyptians hard-hearted and they will march in after them. And thus I will win glory for myself at the expense of Pharaoh and all his army, chariots, and cavalry. And then the Egyptians will realize that I am Adonai when I have won myself glory at the expense of Pharaoh, his chariots, and his cavalry. And so Israel and Moses all are learning about God the Redeemer and God the Savior, and God is revealing a plan that is not based on the human power of Moses or the children of Israel. It's not based on their mastery of supernatural things. This is not a teaching in supernatural methodology. It's nothing like this. This is a lesson from the school of hard knocks. You know what that means? How many know, how many have ever taken classes in the school of hard knocks? Okay, so you know, you know what I'm talking about. This is where you learn the hard way. Your experience that you're going to trust God, but you're not learning a method that you can use over and over again that involves magic wands and seas and things like that. It has to do with something else. You can trust God over and over again. But here's the thing, you can't box God in. The children of Israel thought 
that they knew how God should work and how life should work. And all of us can relate to that, even if we've never been in a situation where Egyptians are chasing us or we've been enslaved. However, each of us, I think, can relate to this, that there are times when we think we know how God should work and we box him in. But it doesn't work to box God in because he won't stay in the box. He won't even get in the box. God was the only one who who knew that it would take 10 specific plagues for Egypt to finally relent and let Israel go. And God was the only one who knew that it would take one more miracle the parting of the Red Sea for Israel and the closing of the Red Sea on Egypt, if you call that one miracle. He's the only one who knew it was going to take that. And he knew that's what it would take for Egypt to finally give up trying to get Israel back into slavery. God worked the way he knew was best. Let me say that again. God worked the way that he knew was best. Now let's fast forward to something related. He knew that coming down and becoming Messiah and Savior was the best way to save us. Only God knew that coming down as Yeshua taking on human form, living among us, and then dying for us. He was the only one who knew that this was necessary to deal with the sins of humanity. Only God knew that the death of Yeshua on the cross was necessary because he knew the secret of resurrection life. You know, after Yeshua was buried... And some of the women went later to get to claim the body or to do whatever they could, and the tomb was empty, and they came back, remember? And they were telling the apostles, and the apostles thought, these women are babbling nonsense. Only God knew that it was necessary to work this way. And it took some people longer to accept it than others. And it still is taking some people longer to accept that than others. But God knew the secret of resurrection life. It was a revelation of God as Redeemer and Savior. God does not fit in a box. So what do you do when you realize that you've put God in a box? I think the first thing is to remember that he's not really in that box. You thought you knew how God should work and what he was like and what he must do and how he must do it and his timing and everything else. And so we we act like God's in the box. But he's not in the box. And once we realize he's not in the box, we don't need to look in the box anymore. He's not there. 
then we can approach God with a humble heart and we can speak to him with humility and we can stop bossing him around. I've had the experience of calling the Lord, Lord. And him saying to my spirit, if I'm Lord, why are you telling me what to do? Anybody had anything like that? <laughs> we are confident that God needs to say amen. We'll pray the right way and God will say amen. And we'll say, well, it's about time. But the Lord is not like that. He's looking for us to say amen to him. That's why Yeshua taught us to pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because when we're praying that way, we're learning to open up our hearts and say to the Lord, this heart wants to do your will. And we don't want to tell you your will. We want you to reveal your will. And that's why abiding in him, spending time with the Lord in fellowship, it's why reading his word and letting his word abide in us changes our heart and the ways that we think and our priorities and afterwards, because we're abiding with the Lord, in this way, we can ask what we will, and it will be done. Because what we're asking is now according to God's will, not according to our previous will. Very important. And if you think of Adonai as meaning not just Lord, but boss, if you can say, yes, boss, to the Lord. It, it may sound too familiar to you, but that's the point. Yes, boss. The Lord says, do this, and you say, yes, sir. Yes, boss. So when we're approaching God with humility, our disappointments will change about things not going the way that we expect, and we'll actually start seeing things differently. We'll be open to ask God more questions and to receive real answers from him. And we will know that he hears us. And yet he is free to do what he knows is best. God will open up something different. It may not be what you want. It may not be what you like. It may not even be what you fully understand, but it will be for good. Sometimes the Lord will take you the roundabout way so that the vestiges of fear and unbelief can be overcome. So that we can learn in reality that he's trustworthy. And he will say, okay, I brought you out. And now I brought you to this place and they're coming after you. And it's terrifying, right? So you're exactly where I want you to be. Now, go forward. Go forward. Sometimes you speak to the rock. Sometimes you strike the rock. Sometimes you lift up 
your staff over the waters and they part, sometimes you have to step into the waters. It's not a method that you're learning. That's what Israel learned. There's no method. It's God being trustworthy at the moment in the situation. God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his ultimate purposes, his highest purposes, and his goals. So when you don't put God in a box, you know what happens? You'll experience more joy and more thanksgiving. That's what happened with the children of Israel. Listen to the song of Moses and Israel on the other side of the Red Sea. And remember how we were singing it this morning. Two times we sang it. But think about the other side of the Red Sea. Here's the song on the other side. Exodus 15. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to Adonai. I will sing to Adonai for he's highly exalted. The horse and its rider he threw in the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, I will glorify him. My Father's God, I will exalt him. Adonai is a warrior. Adonai is his name. Job had a similar revelation, Job 19, 25. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth. He went through so much, but in the end, he made this declaration, I know my Redeemer, my kinsman Redeemer lives. King David had the revelation. In Psalm 18, verse 46, he said, The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and may the God of my salvation be exalted. Let's say that. The God of my salvation. And there's a preface to this in Psalm 18 at the very beginning. It says, for the choir master, so this was written by David for a group to sing, of David, the servant of the Lord, who sang this song to the Lord on the day the Lord had delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. The psalmist Asaph also had the revelation Psalm 78, verse 35. They remembered that God was their rock and that God Most High was their Redeemer. And the prophet Micah also brought this revelation from God. In Micah 6, 4, the Lord says, I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. So who brought the children of Israel up? The Lord. Who redeemed the children of Israel? The Lord. God's the Redeemer. God's the Savior. God's the Messiah. Let's remember that. God redeems us. Let's remember that God saves us. And let's keep our eyes on Yeshua. Because He's the truth. And we all need the truth. Doesn't matter what kind of box you put God in, He's not in a box. 
And he does what he knows is best, and he knows how to redeem us and how to save us. And though there may be some of you who are uncertain, I want to encourage you to take a position. Because as you recognize that it is true that Yeshua is our Messiah and is our Savior and is Adonai and is our Lord, then you can recognize that God himself is our Redeemer and he's our Messiah. And the scriptures teach us when we know such things, we need to say them from our hearts, but with our mouths. And we can say something like this, Lord, thank you for redeeming me through Yeshua. You have become my redemption. You've become my Savior. And I turn away from my sins and everything that separates me from you. And I confess Yeshua is Adonai. And I confess Yeshua died for me. And I confess that Yeshua rose from the dead. Yeshua has paid for my sins. He's given his life so that I can live for God. And you can say amen. It's a wonderful decision to make and to recognize and to say with your own mouth to yourself and to the world around you, And if you prayed like this for the first time, let me know. We'll rejoice with you. It'll be another piece of good news for all of us and the best news for you to pray this way, to live this way for God. Well, in a moment, we're going to close with Aaron's blessing. And I want to encourage you to stand up and If your protocols and health allow it, you can stand with others. And if not, you can stand as you need. And if you're participating by live stream or podcast, would you consider a generous contribution? You can find out all the information on our webpage, bethisraelnow.com slash giving. And now Aaron's blessing. Yivarechecha Adonai v'yishmarecha. Ye'er Adonai, panavelecha v'ichunecha. Yisa Adonai, panavelecha v'yasem lecha. Shalom. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord guard you and keep you. May the Lord cause the light of his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his face to you and give you his peace. In the name of Yeshua, the Prince of Peace. Amen.